Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and welcome back to the Deal Room Podcast, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Now, today we have in line part one of a two-part series of a number of podcasts that I have recorded with the absolutely fabulous Sarah Rigelhuff of Grow My Team. Sarah, in these two episodes, talks about some amazing experiences and lessons learned from many, many years years of multiple acquisitions and exits. And she shares a lot of really useful tips, whether or not you're a business owner who's buying or selling businesses or an advisor in this space. I think you're going to find this two-part series really extremely interesting. There's really loads of takeaways for all of us. So a little bit of a background of Sarah. We talk a bit about her background, but I think it's useful to understand that very clearly after you listen, you'll agree that she's a serial entrepreneur. Entrepreneur. She's an investor also in startups. She's founded eight companies since 2009. And following several successful exits, which we talk about in this two-part series, she's now the CEO of Grow My Team, which is a global recruitment firm. And she also sits on the board of her other company, League of Extraordinary Women. Now, this discussion with Sarah was particularly interesting. I really loved it. In this first episode, you're about to listen to, we talk about Sarah's multiple experiences in acquiring, growing and selling businesses. And we also really dig into this concept of acquisition as a growth strategy and where it can really work well. We also look at some of the hardest lessons that Sarah's learnt from her experiences in exits and we look specifically at her $1 million mistake. So buckle in, this is part one of a two-part series that I absolutely loved recording. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. You're listening to the Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions. Get across trends in the area and hear the industry's best recount their real life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki. Sarah, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I have to admit, I'm super excited about this discussion today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited. I always love our conversation, so I'm sure this will be no different. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So I barely even know where to start in this line of questioning. It sounds like you've been involved in so many startups and um, business sales and acquisitions. Where do we even begin? But how about maybe give us a little bit of an overview, I guess, of your on-the-ground experience as a business owner buying and selling your own businesses. Just a quick overview overview of where you've been and what you've done. Okay. Yeah, I am a bit of a, a bit of a starter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I like to have a lot of things going. I get bored if I'm only doing one thing. So I think that's something as an entrepreneur is kind of like learning how you thrive. You know, for some people, it's that absolute focus on one thing. And for other people, it's I need a few things to keep me occupied. And that's definitely me. Quick overview would be I started my career in a family business, a family financial planning business with my dad. And while we were working together in that business, my my intention at that time was to take over the family business ultimately. And the way that we grew was acquiring other businesses. So it was mainly an insurance brokerage and superannuation and to the masses. So we had 
clients in the thousands and we would basically acquire businesses of financial planners who were retiring. So anywhere from, I think probably we did like some small acquisitions that were maybe like $50,000 up to about, I think our biggest one we did was, I feel like it was about one mil or something like that from memory. That was the biggest we did. And, you know, my dad was actually negotiating all of those deals. But as we got further along the path of working together, I was much more involved in that large one we did right at the end. I was in on a lot of the negotiations and then ultimately was kind of the one running that business and managing the transition. And then in 2009, decided to start my own business. So I'd been in that family business pretty much off and on since I was about 19. And although I liked it, I kind of became a bit more passionate about... One, I became more passionate about running business than just financial planning, but I also saw how I wanted financial advice to be. And I guess I was just my father's daughter and I was like, I'm ready to go out and do something on my own. And I was a bit nervous when I first told him, but of course he was actually happy and proud, even though even though he wanted me to take over the family business, I think he was more proud that I was actually going to go do something on my own. So that was a cool journey. And then that, so that brings me to the last 10 years where I've been an entrepreneur on my own. And I built my first company was a private wealth management business, which I I built to a certain size, made an acquisition and doubled it and then sold that in 2015. So that was the first company I ever sold. So along the way, I'd started the League of Extraordinary Women, which is the online community and conferences for female entrepreneurs. We still own that company. I've started Wealth Enhancers, which I sold out of last year. I sold my shares. I owned that with my ex-husband. That kind of got started out of the other financial planning business. So the original one was private wealth management. And then we started Wealth Enhancers, which was millennial focused. I started a company, an online accounting and bookkeeping business that we actually failed in the end. We ended up starting to shut it down. And also in there, my dad passed away and I inherited his business, which I then ran for a year and sold as well. So I've sold three companies. Part of the sale of the private wealth management business, kind of in the lead up to the sale, I packaged up a couple of parcels of clients that really didn't fit the broader business and sold them off as well. And then more recently, I've acquired a company called Airbnb Hands Free with two business partners. So we did that. One of my business partners is running that company. And then I'm I'm running my primary focus is a business called Grow My Team. We recruit and manage professionals who work from home. And I started that with three other founders. And over the years since we started in 2014, I bought them all out till now I own the whole company. So yeah, seems like I like to buy and sell things as well as starting them. (laughs) Doesn't it? It does sound like that. I'm exhausted. I don't even, as I said, where do we even go? There's so many places we can go with this. (laughs) So tell you what works and what doesn't when it comes to negotiating. (laughs) Well, okay. Okay. I'm I'm writing that down. Let's get there at some stage. So how about to keep it easy, we go back in time. I thought it was really interesting that you're talking about your experience stemming from that family business. I'm sure that was a really good training ground. So maybe tell us a bit about that first acquisition that you were most involved in. So that was the Mm -hmm. larger acquisition at the end. Is that right? That's the one that you... Yeah, totally. The ones prior to that, like I'd understood what was happening and kind of helped behind the scenes. But that one, I was actually going to the meetings. I knew the founders. I formed a really close relationship with them. And the idea was, you know, that 
uh, we, we'd done that with the intention that I would be really the one looking after that new acquisition, that new parcel of business as we kind of integrated it into my company. Brilliant. I love this topic of acquisition for growth. So I just, I want to go there for a bit um, yeah. and, and focusing on this concept of acquisition for growth and, and maybe taking a step back before we even talk about your experience with that acquisition. Obviously, acquisition for growth was a strategy that your father was employing. And did you talk to him much about that as a strategy in comparison to the concept of organic growth, I I guess? Yes, I did. I think I talked to him about it from very early on. So as I say, I I cared about financial planning, but I very quickly fell in love with business and just Mm. everything to do with business. Yeah, I remember talking to him about it. It made a lot of sense to me in the financial planning world in terms of insurance you know we were paid and, and I think it still is this way you're, you're paid a commission on the insurance premium so you sell someone an insurance policy that covers them and suits their lifestyle and if they're paying I don't know a thousand dollars a year in premiums the business gets between probably a hundred and three hundred dollars depending on these different commission structures so I could kind of understand and it's recurring revenue People are going to keep their insurance, and so you're you're building this sort of book of recurring revenue, which you service the clients for in exchange. So it just made a lot of sense. Like rather than getting one client, someone's retiring, they need someone to continue to look after their fifty, hundred, two hundred, five hundred clients. So we would just buy those those clients and that revenue stream essentially, and start servicing them. It was also amazing because you know you look for opportunity, like okay, this is, they're potentially a little underserved in a lot of cases because this guy's been, or this girl's been winding down for a couple of years. Yeah. They're either retiring or changing industries. So we've got then a hundred new names that we can go and speak to and, you know, offer other financial planning services to maybe upgrade their insurances, just see what their needs are. And so like really exciting from understanding how to put the deal together in terms of what you would pay for it and what that return on investment would be, but also where's the upside, where's the opportunity. So I loved it as a strategy for growth. I mean, it's interesting because I had to figure out marketing later because we really didn't market that business at all. Our growth strategy was acquisition. Wow. Yeah, I love it. I mean, you know, I can really see that that is the type of model of business where it's very easy to see how acquisition, growth by acquisition can really work. Did you spend much time prior to acquisitions working out how you would measure what the success of the acquisition would look like? Or was it just about you had your metrics for what you're looking for, you bought it, then you did your thing with that? Do you know what I mean? It's actually really funny you say that because I'm thinking back now (laughs) to all the lessons I've learned along the way. And you know what my dad did well was not do business with assholes. And I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on your podcast, but (laughs) (laughs) not many kids are listening, I don't think. (laughs) Basically, that was, you know, a big part of he knew a lot of these people. They were friends of his, people in the industry that were winding down. So he had some level of familiarity with the business and who the people were. And so, yes, we would do due diligence. Yes, we would look at the numbers. But, you know, it was pretty – I think there was a lot of trust in the deals and that's something that I've learned. Like I said, it's interesting you said it because I'm like, huh, if I, I didn't listen to that lesson because along my journey, you know, sometimes I've ended up doing business with people that it doesn't matter how good the contracts are. It doesn't matter all of that stuff. Like they probably just weren't the right people for me to be doing business with. And I, I don't mean to say 
they're bad people or whatever, but the fit wasn't right. You know, we weren't aligned. And that's been my biggest lesson along later, and we can come to that later, but is doing business with people that you just have a good feeling about that you feel more aligned with and it feels like the deals just go a bit better. I'm a very like intuitive, flowy kind of person and I believe a lot in that part of things. I'm also numbers driven like numbers that eat come easy to me i spent 17 years in finance like so like we would do financial models and projections they weren't necessarily complicated it was for me it's just like does it add up do we think there's like from a qualitative perspective do we think there's opportunity here managing that out like how much how little and just doing the deal that way but i think i messed that up later i went and decided i needed to learn the hard lessons (laughs) (laughs) okay I really want to come back to those (laughs) very instructive uh and look the reality is I think we probably learn the most from those yeah when things are going well it's very hard to work out what even to drill into to work out why it worked until you've got the problems to I guess measure it against (laughs) well that's exactly right and that is what happened to me I did five deals with my dad that all went swimmingly well there was no regrets, no nothing. Everyone got on the other side got paid their tranche payments. I then made an acquisition when I went out on my own and that went really well, paid that guy his full money. I then inherited dad's business, ended up selling that. That all went really well. And then I naively went into a deal where I felt very strongly intuitively that I shouldn't be working with those people, but Mm. I didn't have any other buyers. And it was an absolute disaster and they didn't pay me. It was just under a million dollars that was the second tranche payment and I never got it. Wow. And so seeing as we're on there, let's stick with this. What happened in that deal? So firstly, just why didn't you get it, I guess, is the first step. Yeah. So when we negotiated a pretty standard deal, this is financial planning and disclaimer around all this is like I'm more well-versed in buying and selling financial planning businesses than any other business. Fairly traditional or typical deals would be around an 80% upfront payment and then Mm. either a second payment of 20 or two second payment of 10 or something. But they negotiated hard and they wanted 60-40. So they paid Mm. us 60% upfront and then there was two tranche payments, 20% after 12 months and 20% after another 12 months. Mm. So it was a two-year earn out as well. Mm. And they didn't want us involved at all in the business moving forward once the you know brief handover period, which was just a couple of months, three months, was done. But what they also negotiated into the deal, which is not uncommon, but looking back, I'll explain where I didn't protect myself. What, what's not uncommon is if clients leave, it, they represent over 5% of the total sale value. Mm-hmm. There's an adjustment on those second tranche payments, also really standard. But where I didn't protect myself was I had 40% on the line. So, and 10 or 20% on the line is a lot different to 40%. Yeah. And that 40% was just shy of a million. It was $960,000, I think. So I had a fairly decent whack on the line. Mm. And basically what happened was, as with any handover, this we had 56 clients. So the other thing was you know, one client was a lot of money kind of thing. And as what always happens, there was a couple that when we did the handover, they kind of called up and said, yeah, we're going to go with you know our accounting firm have a private wealth management arm we're going to go with them and you know we sat down had lunch and I was like I get it that's cool mm. you know really good and then over time they proceeded to lose more and more clients and they were mm. losing clients right up until the two-year mark 
Wow. And I don't care which way you look at it. That's not on us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. And it was just really stupid of me because they basically were able to drive the business into the ground and not have to pay for that. Mm. So they could even almost handpick who they wanted to keep and not even worry about the rest. So in some regards, they got a business that was worth a lot more for a lot less. Or maybe it was a bigger business than they even wanted. They didn't end up having to pay, having to buy that bigger business. Or mm. I don't know. I'm sure they've got their side to the story as well. But I think ultimately what happened was I didn't negotiate very well because I didn't have any other buyer and I was totally done. By the time they came around, I was so focused on growing my millennial business and the opportunity there. And I was so exhausted of running a private wealth management firm because it was a lot of work. Mm. And I was just so ready to get out that I basically was willing to do. And I just hadn't had much experience negotiating. Like every other deal had been pretty run-of-the-mill. It had been that 80-20 or 90-10 and good people and it had all gone to plan. So I got totally blindsided by this. We had a really good contract. Like I spent money on a good contract and I thought that was me protecting myself. But it wasn't. It just gave us something to fight over. But I guess in reality, a good contract also helps. It does, absolutely. But also it sometimes helps predict some of these things and put controls in place so that, you know, because I guess it's one thing just to put words around the deal, but it's another thing to take the deal and protect the deal a bit more. Yeah. And and what sort of deal team did you have around you at that point? Like, Did you have people in there helping advise and you with the negotiations? I had a broker, but, you know, I look back now and I'm like, who did he really work for? Yeah. Himself to get a commission on the deal and yeah. you know he's a, he's a friend of mine and you know we've talked openly about this but it was negotiations were not pleasant mm. you know we got to a, I walked in a room and I was in business with my ex-husband so we were negotiating together I, I'd been out a day that they were doing some due diligence we did like a lot of extensive handover work with them after we'd negotiated and I walked in and the, one of the guys that we were selling to at the point that I walked in they were in the middle of this heated argument and he was up off his chair looking like he was going to punch my ex-husband wow and I was just like what the hell is going on like you know we hadn't quite signed the paperwork then but that was the kind of like yeah. we were not aligned like we yeah. were not in a good place and there was a lot of aggression we had another moment where there was a phone call and stuff was being thrown around the room because they couldn't find this was after we'd sold they couldn't wow. find something in the file that we then went and found within five minutes like they were just hot-headed and there was a lot of misalignment around like technology and we were fully online and not realizing that people who aren't fully online are going to struggle with that. Like yeah, I didn't actually right. get it. Like I thought we had this amazing business, everything's online, but it was actually hard for people that were older that didn't have those systems. Right. So just a lot of resistance and mismatching. But yeah, so I had the broker and my lawyer. My lawyer did a great job with the contract. Like it was tight. And mm. when we, we ended up in a two and a half year legal battle over this extra mill. Wow. That cost me 200 grand. Wow. The legal fees and we didn't get our payment, but we had the judge that, my barrister was confident on mm. but then something happened with that judge and that got thrown out and that put us another year in the legal system mm. uh, anyway long and complicated story but yeah I had my lawyer and I had the broker 
and I was inexperienced of negotiating. And this is interesting because quite often I have this discussion with people who are looking to sell their business about the benefits of competitive tension, <laughs> you know, like having multiple buyers. And, and I guess this perhaps is also an example of that, you know, some of the benefits of there were clearly some red flags if there could have been someone else you could have moved to, even if it wasn't the same total amount, you know, you would have at least had someone to play off and, you know, as the red flags came up, someone else to go to. Sometimes competitive tension falls out, so multiple buyers fall out because the process is so long, which sometimes it can be. Yeah. In this instance, why was it that there was just one buyer sitting on the table? If you reflect back, what were some of the reasons that led to that? Because I built a business that was hard to sell. Yeah. There weren't many capable buyers. Like we had a lot of licensing and in terms of private wealth management, our capacity was very broad and there weren't many businesses that could actually do from a licensing perspective all the things that we were doing. Mm. And we were charging a lot of money per client and servicing, you know, high level of service. There just weren't that many businesses at that time. We're going back almost five years now in the financial planning space that could take on a business like Mm. ours. And it was a business that actually had less upside in it because we were servicing the clients well and Mm. charging accordingly. Mm. We had bought that business originally and really expanded what we were doing and what was, I don't know, probably a $600,000 a year revenue business, we turned into a 1.8 mil Mm. revenue business. So we tripled. So we'd kind of done all of that growth and opportunity. So there just wasn't a lot of buyers, basically. It was also a time in the market where everyone was quite skittish because of all of the regulation change. Mm. Um, financial services has been hugely, you know, under the microscope and a lot of regulation changes. And at different times during the last 10 years, there's been periods where it just hasn't been easy to sell businesses. So just, I think that was a big lesson for me as well. But sometimes you're just in that position where you just want out. Yeah. What is my lesson from that now? It would be I just knowing what I know now, that first payment I got, was I okay with that? Because that may be all you ever get. Yeah, that is such a good point. I love that you say that because that's quite often the conversation that we have with our clients. Because I think there are many, many instances in which earnouts, you know, and there's a difference between deferred payment being something where you have an agreed amount, but they'll be paid later versus the traditional earnout, which is, you know, you need to hit a set or the business needs to hit a set of metrics. And of course, if you have no power over the business hitting those metrics, then I just think it's so important that point that I just want to highlight it, that having that thought process right up front, okay, would I be happy if I had to walk away and get nothing further than that initial payment? Would I be happy or not? Which is a really good point. Yeah. And then I feel like that's how you negotiate. Mm. Like negotiate to get, well, that's sort of how I would negotiate in the future mm. would be um, like, make sure that I'm happy with that as starting point and happy with the terms that I've put in for the earn out or whatever it is or the second tranche. But like try to get to a point where I'm happy with that first payment if the deal goes pear-shaped. Mm. Because nothing's done until the money's in the bank. Yeah, that's right. And so you can only count on it until when it's there. And I feel like that was my big lesson from that one. To the point where I'd take less money. Mm. I'm saying this live. So anyone who's ever buys a business (laughs) in the future now, you know. (laughs) But I'd take less money to just be done with it. Because I think 
that's another reality in, in most cases and it has been for me. When you're done, you're done. You want to move on with whatever's next in your life. So I'm cautious that could change. Like I could be in a situation where I'm in a different selling situation, but generally I feel like I'd take less money to just have a cleaner handover. Yeah. And I guess the other thing as you're talking that I'm quite interested in is you talk about the way you built up the business, then creating issues at exit. Knowing those issues now, well, so firstly, when you purchased this business and were then growing it, did you have a mind at that point of exit? Were you thinking about building it for exit? No. And I think I built a good business with good systems and processes. So there was a little bit of me that did. But in terms of the way we were charging, the services we were providing, the systems and processes, yes, it was a good business that was built to sell. And I I had that thought to a degree. But at that time, I didn't understand putting a team that could be sold. Mm. So that business was still, and this is another thing that happened. Yeah, I remember now. So I was the financial advisor and I had a team supporting me. I'd hired another financial advisor. So she had been working with the clients for about two years. Mm. So it was somewhat could be sold with the team. She resigned Mm. and that put me in a really tight spot where I was like, and I remember that happened while we were negotiating. And so, you know. Do you know what? That's actually quite common. So, sorry, keep going. But it's, you know, you're talking about a common thing. So it's really important that you're shedding light on this because that's a reality of what can happen. Yeah. And so what did you do then? Well, she resigned. So I think from memory, I managed to get her to stick around. She was gone when we already sold, but I managed to kind of get her to stick around as long as I could. But that was another reason why my back was against the wall. So I was like, either I go back in and advise or I try to hire someone. But how can you hire someone when you're about to sell the business? And what I realized with that was we weren't selling the business. We were selling the client book. Mm. And all our systems and processes and all those amazing things that we built, they didn't want any of that. They just wanted the clients and the revenue. Mm. And now I understand that it's like good client, good systems and processes, but it's a marketing engine. If you want to sell the business, it's a marketing engine. It's a team. It's, you know, I now build businesses that can run everything without me. And my role, if I am CEO, is visionary and leadership. Like I'm not really doing anything. So I can be replaced yeah. by the CEO of the acquiring company. And I mean, I have a goal in Grow My Team to... Like once I get to a certain point, I'll hire a CEO in. I don't even want to be the CEO after that point. So it's really, you know, I'm trying to build things now that are you can buy the whole thing. And I think that there's different things people want to buy, um, but I'd kind of like half built it and thinking I was selling this amazing company, like the everything, mm. but they didn't want any of it. They just wanted the clients. Wow. Well, that's it for today's episode discussing exits and all of the problems that can occur and how it looks when it's done really well with Sarah Reigelhuth of Grow My Team. Now, if you're interested in contacting Sarah, you can find her through the show notes that we have attached to this episode, or you can find her on LinkedIn. Just look for Grow My Team or Sarah Reigelhuth. And as I said, we'll link through to it on our website and in our show notes. So just head over to thedealroompodcast.com. Now at that website, you'll also find details of how to contact our legal eagles at Aspect legal if you are looking to exit your business at some point in the future or you're staring down the path of an acquisition or indeed if um, you 
or your clients would like to discuss any backgrounds of the services that we provide in this area. Now, I want you to make sure you come back next week for part two of this two-part series with Sarah, where we talk specifically and in more detail about the lessons that she has learned from her mistakes at Exit, how she's applied these lessons now in her businesses that she's involved in moving forward. We've also discussed how to grow a business if sale is in mind for the future. And we also discuss in detail how to acquire great teams for far less than you might expect that you would have to pay and indeed making it at reach for any business, whether it's a small business or a large business. Well, that's it for today. If you enjoyed what you heard, then please pop over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player and leave us a review. But that's it. Well, hopefully you've subscribed and come back and listen to part two. Thanks again for listening in. You've been listening to Joanna Oki and the Deal Room Podcast, proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. See you next time. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. That will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening to the Deal Room Podcast. To find out more about this episode and other episodes in the series, check out the show notes or head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com.au.